Morning, everyone. Great to be with you this morning. Uh, my name is Young, if I haven't met you yet, pastor here at New Life. Uh, New Life is the English ministry of Sezun Presbyterian Church, uh, where we're doing worship from, and our mother church is celebrating its 30th anniversary today. So today is the actual day of the 30th anniversary. Um, along the way, Sezun, uh, in 2002, lovingly formed uh, this congregation, New Life. Um, they saw the need for the gospel of grace to go out in our mother tongue, uh, in English, and they wanted to raise their children and to reach their children as well in the language that they felt most comfortable with. So that also means that we're in our 20th year of existence, uh, which is very exciting. So uh, we will thank God for this in a moment in prayer. Uh, but in the midst of our celebrations as well, um, let's continue to bring before God those who are suffering across the world, uh, those who are suffering injustice across the world as well. So how about I pray for us? Father, we turn to you and we bring before you um, the people that are suffering and that are calling out in injustice, God, under the hand of oppression. Uh, we think about those that are going through wartime. We think about those that are not even being reported on. And we think about those who are uh, oppressed under uh, different regimes. Father, we bring them before your eyes, knowing that you see them, that you hear their plight, and we ask that you would intervene. We say along with the psalmist, why, my soul, are you so dejected? Why are you in such turmoil? We want to put our hope in you and still praise you because you are God and Savior. And we see your faithfulness through the work that you've done in our congregation at New Life. We see your faithfulness through what you're doing at Sezun as well, God. And we pray, Lord, that that will continue on into the future. May we depend upon your faithfulness and not our own faithfulness or our lack thereof. We pray, Lord, that you will continue to be with us, guide us, change us by your wisdom, and help us, Lord, to take on more of the image of Christ. And as we read through the book of Ruth, would you remind us, Lord, of the love that you have for insiders that have gone out and for outsiders that were never invited in. And we do pray all these things in Jesus' name, knowing that he loves us. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So we're in uh, week two of our sermon series through the book of Ruth, Loving the Outsider, and you see that uh, graphic on screen there. So last week, we started our sermon series through the book of Ruth. We saw how God's hand of grace is there for us, even in the worst of circumstances, the worst of times. And so we examined last week the context, the background. We kind of set the table uh, for the next few weeks as well, a couple of months, uh, with the background of the book of Ruth. And we saw also how there are times in our lives where we're faced with different choices that we can make. We're faced with some very important choices that we can make. Uh, we witnessed as Naomi lost her husband and her two sons in Moab, and she decides now to make the journey back to Bethlehem, God's promised land. And this is where we pick up uh, our story again this week. So um, I do ask you to keep your Bibles open because I'll take us through uh, kind of verse by verse, passage by passage. And so we'll start with uh, the opening two verses there. Verses six to seven. She and her daughters-in-law set out to return from the territory of Moab because she had heard in Moab that the Lord had paid attention to his people's need by providing them food. She left the place where she had been living, accompanied by her two daughters-in-law, and traveled along the road leading back to the land of Judah. 
So Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, start out on this journey to Bethlehem together. But along the way, Naomi starts having some second thoughts. And so the next two verses there, Naomi said to them, each of you go back to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to the dead and to me. May the Lord grant each of you rest in the house of a new husband. She kissed them and they wept loudly. So the choice that Naomi makes here to return to Bethlehem is filled with bitterness and hurt. You know, hence uh, where we get the title for today's sermon, A History of Bitterness. And she doesn't have many options left. You know, when she's in Moab, she doesn't have a lot of options left. Even by the worldly wisdom that brought her to Moab in the first place, the best decision is to return. But the question on Naomi's mind at this point is, this might be the right decision for me, but is this the right decision for me to make on behalf of my daughters-in-law? Is it right for me to bring them back to this land? And by conventional wisdom, it didn't make sense for Orpah and Ruth to come with her. Naomi is going back home, and her only plan is to seek out charity from her remaining family members who exist in Bethlehem, whoever they may be, however distant they may be. And so depending on the generosity of others, if you've ever done that before, it's hard enough on your own. But with two more mouths to feed, you can imagine how hard this would be. And worse still is the fact that these two daughters-in-law are Moabites. They were outsiders. They would be outsiders if they came to Bethlehem. Not only would they themselves suffer as outsiders because of their identity, but they would serve as a constant reminder to Naomi herself of the fact that she left the promised land. That was her decision, along with Elimelech, her husband. And not only that, but her sons married people outside of God's covenant, despite being told not to do this. You know, we saw that last week. They would also be a label, so a signpost for all the people around them in this community, reminding them that Naomi and her family abandoned God and they were judged for it. Where are your husband and two sons? Where are they? They were judged because you left. So without grace touching all of society, starting with their own family, Orpah and Ruth would always, always be an embarrassment to Naomi. Read with me verses 10 to 13. They said to her, we insist on returning with you to your people. But Naomi replied, return home, my daughters. Why do you want to go with me? Am I able to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. Go on, for I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me to have a husband tonight and to bear sons, would you be willing to wait for them to grow up? Would you restrain yourselves from remarrying? No, my daughters. My life is much too bitter for you to share because the Lord's hand has turned against me. And there's an interesting parallel to Naomi herself here. Because why should Orpah and Ruth leave their homeland and come with her to a land that's not their own? This is what Naomi and her family did in the first place at the beginning of chapter one. And so logically, in Naomi's mind, wouldn't they end up in the same bitter situation as Naomi, on a road to ruin? This is extremely revealing. You can really get inside Naomi's head. 
you can see how Naomi views God at this point. To her, it seems as though God is being vindictive. You've done this, so I will judge you. Or, it seems as though Naomi sees God as one of many gods. If she truly believes that it will be better for her daughters-in-law to return to Moab. Like, better in whose eyes? If she truly believes in her God, wouldn't it make sense, no matter how hard things are, for them to come with her to Bethlehem? Now, this isn't to say she can't be hurt or face grief, okay? It's very important for us to underline that, right? You can understand the unimaginable pain and grief that she's going through, the sadness, the anger that she was exhibiting. She says, my life is much too bitter for you to share because the Lord's hand has turned against me. But what's really happening in her grief here? Like many of us here, we face some sort of troubles in our lives. We face some sort of personal tragedy in our lives. And maybe you're hearing Naomi's words there, and it really echoes, you know, in the halls of your mind, in the most secret parts of your heart, and you identify with Naomi and her bitterness. For Naomi, and for some of us, whatever the theological truth that we know, it's obscured by this thick fog of pain. This pain that she's in just obscures any sort of truth that she might know about God. And it's in this state that we're faced with a choice. Do we turn back to God to alleviate or to at least give some sort of meaning to the pain that we're going through? Or do we, like Naomi, turn away and in the process give ourselves over to bitterness and to spiritual blindness? Read with me the next uh, verse here. Verse 14, again they wept loudly and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And so Orpah, she gathers up her emotions. She lets reason win the day for her. Logic wins the day. Why should she follow her mother-in-law to this foreign land where she's going to be an outsider? It makes sense. By conventional wisdom, it makes sense to not do this. She could find some sort of significance still in her life, in her age, with a fresh start back in her own homeland, where people know her, where she knows her people. She could settle down with a new husband, have a new family. It's not too late for her. But unwittingly, in doing this, she's actually making the same logical choice that Elimelech and Naomi made earlier in this chapter. With it, she remains an outsider. Do you see this? She remains an outsider and she exits from history right here. We know nothing more about what Naomi does. But Ruth clung to Naomi. I don't know if you've ever had someone cling to you. I don't know if you've ever clung to someone before. This word is extremely descriptive for us in the English language even, when we describe it, when we read it. But in the original language, there's so much more meaning behind it. To cling to her mother-in-law, to davach in the Hebrew, it means to be cleaved to, as in put together in an inseparable bond. You will never separate again, is a promise being made here. More than physical, more than emotional, there's something very spiritual happening here. There's a spiritual promise being made. This is the same word that's used in Genesis 2, 24. Very famous verse 
If you've ever been to a wedding before, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds the vak with his wife, and they become one flesh. It's a word that shows the bond, the commitment to the bond, the loyalty to the covenant together. Ruth clung to Naomi, and nothing could possibly separate her or send her away. Ruth 1.15, Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Follow your sister-in-law. And so Naomi tries to convince Ruth to leave, but she's not having it. And this, at this moment, she makes this very famous, most impassioned speech. So even if you haven't read the book of Ruth before, it's very possible that you've heard these words before, where each statement, she starts elevating her commitment more and more. So read with me very slowly here, Ruth 1.16. Don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go, even if it's on the road to the unknown. Wherever you live, I will live, even if I'm an outsider in this strange land. Your people will be my people, even if they don't accept me. Your God will be my God. Ruth here is committing herself completely, mind, body, and soul to Naomi. For better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, in love, till death parts them. If you've been with New Life since the beginning of the year, there's been a lot of weddings being announced. And those who have gotten married know what a huge commitment it is. These words are, these vows that they make at the end. Like, I can't even lead people through these vows. That's how big a commitment this is. You know, this covenant made before God and her and community, but this is with her mother-in-law. Like, imagine you making this covenant with your mother-in-law. Most of you guys don't have mother-in-law, but imagine the future, your mother-in-law, you're making this covenant. I should be speaking to that room over there. Goes on. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. And this is important. Ruth here is turning away from her own gods, from her own people's gods, from her people. In the land of Moab at this time, there's a deep connection between land and their gods. To even leave this land and to say, I'm forsaking this land, you're saying, all of this religion that came before me, I'm done with it. A proper burial in a Moabite belief in the land, that's what's required for a good afterlife. So what we think of as heaven, what we think of as the afterlife to a Moabite, if you're not in the land anymore, you're guaranteeing in that belief system, you won't have that afterlife. And this is what she's turning her back on. She's so committed to Ruth that she's saying, I'm sure about your God. And so she's committing herself to Naomi's God, to our God. She even calls on God as witness, inviting him to strike her down, never make this promise, inviting him to strike her down if she goes back on her promise. Ruth lays down her life to serve Naomi. 
Naomi's response, Ruth 1.18, when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped talking to her. Every time I hear Ruth's words here in this chapter, every time I read through her speech, I'm moved. Like, who talks like this? Where you go, I will go. Where you live, I will live. Where you die, I will die. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Who says that? Naomi responds in silence. And in her bitterness, those words from Ruth just deflect right off her heart. She doesn't want to hear it. And the rest of the journey back to Bethlehem is spent in this bitter silence. You can imagine, they're not in a car together. Like, it's a long journey back to be spent in silence. Probably the most awkward mother-daughter kind of thing that you can ever imagine. Ruth 1, 19 to 22. The two of them traveled until they came to Bethlehem. When they entered Bethlehem, the whole town was excited about their arrival, and the local women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, she answered. For the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has opposed me and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi came back from the territory of Moab with her daughter-in-law, Ruth, the Moabitess. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. When the two women arrive back in Bethlehem, everyone knows about it. The local women, they all welcome Naomi home. And in this welcome, you can read, there are two things that give a really clear indication of not only where Naomi is at, but how Ruth is going to be viewed in this whole town. So number one, Naomi assesses her situation, and she says that although she went away full, the Lord has brought her back empty. What a statement. Putting aside the theological implications of such a statement, of believing that she could be full while directly moving away from God, okay, putting that aside, Ruth is standing right there, like alongside her mother-in-law. And she just made this grand speech about her commitment to Naomi, her love for her, her willingness to die for her, how she's going to be with her until the very end. So what is Ruth to Naomi? She's less than nothing. Naomi doesn't see her as worth anything if she's saying, I've come back empty. Maybe Naomi is speaking in this way because no one else is even acknowledging Ruth's existence at this point. Read with me. The two of them traveled until they came to Bethlehem. When they entered Bethlehem, the whole town was excited about their arrival, and the local women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Have you ever been invited somewhere by someone, but when you arrive, everyone knows each other? No one knows you except your friend, and they leave you in the corner and go talk to their friends anyway. It makes you feel different, it makes you feel like an other. It makes you feel like you don't belong. You are an outsider. Everyone can see there are two people standing here. But no one bothers to ask, Naomi, who is that? Who, who are you standing with? Who did you bring back? 
They could see that she was an outsider. She looks different. She's a Moabitess. And no one wanted to acknowledge that outsider's existence. No one wants to hear about her story. Everyone knows the people of Moab. Much like with Naomi on the road to Bethlehem, there's this bitter silence. There's a quiet contempt that the people show for Ruth. And as Naomi speaks, there's even more beneath the surface. Now, her condition is not good here. She's finally returned to the promised land, but it's not as though she's returned repentant. She's just come back in body. Her mind is elsewhere. She blames God for everything that's happened up until this point, and she can't see any grace behind it at all. Now, pause here, because this is hard to swallow for anyone who's been hurt before. Like most of the time when you've been hurt before, you don't want to hear it. You don't want to hear a theological truth. You don't want to hear that God is gracious to you. But the truth is the truth. When things go bad, the temptation is there for all of us. And I've been there before as well, so I can, you know, empathize with you. We want to point an accusatory finger at God. Even when things are the direct result of our own sin, we look for someone else to blame. We don't want to know that it's our fault. And so we begin to miss out on what God's actually doing, the gracious, gracious provision, the providence behind it all. Suffering and great tragedy, they're hallmarks of this broken world, but they're more than that as well. They can be evidence of God's grace as well. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, speaking on pain, the human spirit will not even begin to try to surrender self-will as long as all seems to be well with it. Pain is not only immediately recognizable evil, but evil impossible to ignore. We can rest contentedly in our sins and in our stupidities. And anyone who has watched gluttons shoveling down the most exquisite foods as if they did not know what they were eating will admit that we can ignore even pleasure. But pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. What was the trajectory of Naomi's life up until this point? Naomi's family, we saw last week, was happy to just while away their time in Moab for the rest of their lives. They had no plan. They were far from God. They left the covenant, and that's it. They just drifted through the rest of their lives. But in this great tragedy, Naomi's forced to reassess. She's forced back to Bethlehem. And in fact, Ruth, the outsider, is the one who displays more of an understanding of a covenant. That's what she makes to her mother-in-law. Sometimes, God will take away the things that we love most because we might have an inordinate love for these things. So when he takes these things away, it gives us this opportunity to properly order the loves in our hearts once again, to place God first. In this way, he liberates us from the clutches of sin because he loves us. Now in her pain, Naomi can recognize the hand that she's been dealt. And she could see God's power but she doesn't respond to it correctly. She resents it. She hates God for it. 
She's angry at the consequences that her family reaped, the judgment that had come because of their turning away from God. Is it any wonder that this is taking place at the time of Judges? We talked about this last week, right? Naomi is a microcosm of the time that she's living in. And so she tells the townspeople to call her Marah, which means bitter. And this is a name with some history behind it. God's people rebelled when they felt that he wasn't providing for their needs. We see that in Exodus 15. Then Moses led Israel on from the Red Sea. And they went out to the wilderness of Shur. They journeyed for three days in the wilderness without finding water. They came to Marah, but they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. That is why it was named Marah. The people grumbled to Moses. What are we going to drink? Keep in mind, this is a few days removed from God parting the Red Sea to save these people, delivering the people from slavery in Egypt, which they endured for hundreds of years. After everything they've seen up to this point, could it be so simple for them to just forget what God had done? Well, yes, if we examine our own lives. So ironically, Naomi must not remember that God tested the people at Marah when she names herself this. And they failed, not trusting in him, but instead turning to bitterness themselves. And by the way, this renaming thing, it works just about as well as when you try to give yourself a nickname. No one goes with it. No one calls her Marah for the rest of the chapter, for the rest of the book. Remember last week, Elimelech and Naomi, they didn't trust that God would provide. And so they left Moab. They left for Moab in the first place. The family, they didn't even think about returning even after Elimelech's death. They just took the path of least resistance Naomi gives her sons in marriage to Orpah and Ruth. And even when she finally sets foot back in Bethlehem, she can't reconcile her anger until her heart is just scarred with this bitterness. If Naomi could reflect upon Marah and what happened there, maybe she could wonder then. Well, in the past, God dealt with his people like this at that time saved them, he was gracious to them, despite knowing that they would dis despise him, that they would hate his grace. What about for me then? God shows himself to be gentle and patient and gracious. He made the bitter water sweet to the taste. He made it drinkable. And next, he even took the Israelites to Elim, the place of rest. He's always been faithful. Perhaps Naomi could ask, then maybe I can confess. Maybe I can be humble and confess my sins, and maybe I can return home to him. Where are we at? Where are we at, New Life? Because this is far removed from our context. What does this passage in Ruth say to us? First, it tells us Orpah and Ruth are not so different from us. If 
Ephesians 2 reads, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. Outsiders, children of wrath, dead in our trespasses and sins, in need of a new birth. And like Orpah and Ruth, we're faced with a choice at some point, even if it's not our mother-in-law presenting this choice to us. We're faced with that choice. Where we might look to our own understanding, the collective wisdom of others around us, and we might go Orpah's way. And for a while, things might work out. Who knows? Who knows Orpah's story? She might have met someone back in Moab. She might have had a happy little life with a happy family before happily dying in her homeland. And yet she didn't gain a relationship with the one true God. If we really believe what we're preaching, if we really believe what we talk about each week, then we know that this is the most important thing in our lives. It's not marriage, it's not children, it's our God. Just like Elimelech and Naomi, Things might work out until one day they just don't. Or we might choose like Ruth. It's this narrow road that she chooses, which is a hard one. She faces tribulations. We read them right here in this chapter. There's a fearsome road into the unknown. Ruth turns from her own understanding of everything that she grew up with. Her own gods, her own homeland, her own people, And she turns to the mercy and the grace of the one true God because she's heard and she believes. What did Ruth have to offer to Naomi? What did she have to offer to God? Like Naomi said, she returned to Bethlehem empty. Did Ruth have anything to offer but her own emptiness as well? What's she gonna do? She's hated in this new land. Is it going to be easy for her to get a job? And yet, in trusting God, that emptiness is what qualifies her. In dying to her own self-interest, she took up her cross. Following God, Ruth ended up alongside his people in Bethlehem. And as strange and as offensive and prejudiced as these people are, and often God's people are like this, Ruth came and embraced Naomi's people as her own people. Your people will be my people, she says, and she lives it out. And as we'll see in the following chapters of Ruth, this one outsider who became completely committed to God and to his people ended up changing these people of God, all the lives around her. You too, in your commitment to God and to his people here at New Life, you can bring renewal to the family of faith as well. And for those of us who have been Christian for a while, we can see God's concern for the outsider here, and this can be intimidating. We identify more closely with Naomi, who might have some sort of a shallow care for those around us, for those around her. She tells her daughters-in-law, go back, take care of yourselves. It'll be better for you there. It seems caring from a worldly perspective. 
We might do things for our neighbors, for our friends. We might, do, we might do great favors for them. But is it affecting their eternity at all? There's no real thought given by Naomi to the state of their souls, their relationship with God. If you're there, and there's no judgment here, and we're in the same place. If you struggle to muster up care for your friends and family and coworkers and neighbors, then maybe you can see Naomi wasn't really the model of faith in her covenant community already. That's why she left in the first place, right? And then maybe we can see, as we identify with Naomi, that we need to do a bit of soul searching on our own as well. We gotta pray. But in this, we can take heart. That even in Naomi's struggle with bitterness, with disobedience to God, what happens? Even as she didn't really care for Ruth's spiritual state, what happens? God was still in the picture. He was still moving. He's still faithful despite our unfaithfulness. He still chose Naomi's life to impact Ruth's life. In her unfaithfulness, her life still preaches the gospel to this Moabite, to the point where Ruth can come to him and then affect Naomi as well. It's because of God's grace that Ruth can say, for wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. In God's son, Jesus, we have the one who is with us, not just wherever we will go, but until the very end of the age, even where we don't expect him, even in the deepest depths of our sin, we still find him waiting. He left his home at his father's side to be with us and came to us that we might know him and be saved by him. And then he died, he was buried in our land, and he was raised again. And he sent his spirit to us so that our souls might cling to his forever. One last thing to say uh, to those who have followed Christ for a while. Many of us at New Life were even born into Christian families. I know that this is the story for a lot of us. And it can be confronting and it can be really convicting to see Naomi seems to have so much bitterness and a lack of zeal for the Lord. And then you look at Ruth, this outsider, who's very passionate for him, who seems very, very passionate. And maybe you've experienced this for yourselves. Like you see people within our church, you see people around you who are very young believers. They just heard about the Lord Jesus and they're like, I'm in. And they're doing everything under the sun. And you feel guilty and you tell them, don't do that. I'm like, I gotta do it now. You see this great deal of passion and you find yourself resentful towards them or bitter at God that your faith is dry. If this is where you're at, let's not make the same mistake that Naomi made here in embracing her bitterness and refusing to repent. We've been given a great gift. Talk to him. Talk to God. Confess where you're at with him. He can take it. He's your father. He loves you. He'd love to hear from you. He already knows 
And yet his desire is to hear from you. He's gentle. He's patient enough for you to wait for you to come to him first. Repent and turn back to him and ask him to reignite your love for him again, whatever it takes. This might mean, like Naomi, that he takes away the sins that you've enamored yourself with, whatever it might be. It might be something that you love. It might be something good. If it is that he takes away something that's good, that you like better than God, that you're asked to give to him, ask him for help. Ask him for help in these things and embrace God. Because when you're emptied, you're filled with something far greater when it comes to the love of God. Why don't we pray together? Father, I just want to lift up my friends and family here at New Life, those who hear your word, those who are changed by you, those who hear your word and are obstinate against it. Help us, God. You have said, Lord, that you look upon the hardened heart of your people, that you will take away the heart of stone and give us the heart of flesh, If only we would seek you, if only we would ask. Give us that passion, give us that zeal. Give us, Lord, that ability to see where we're at, Lord, to be honest with ourselves and with you and with our community around us and to say that without you, we have nothing. Indeed, we come to you empty. We come to you worse than empty. We come to you barren. We come to you with nothing to offer, wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And you offer your living water for free. We want to take you up on that offer. But man, our faith won't do it. Help us to believe in our unbelief, God. Would you take our hearts and give us new ones? that we might be able to give up whatever it is that we love in our lives more than you, whether the good things or bad things, whatever we categorize them as, help us to order the loves in our lives right. May you come first and foremost, may you permeate all of it, that the rest of the stuff, we might love to the glory of God instead of for ourselves. We wanna love you. We know, Lord, that we can be satisfied in you and you alone. That our end is to glorify you and to be satisfied by you completely. And if we're not there yet, move our hearts to that place, God. Raise up brothers and sisters around us to hold us accountable, to pray for us, that we can confess to, that we can repent alongside. And may they preach the gospel to us, renewing grace in our hearts, just as we do the same for them. Help us, Lord, to love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.